Welcome to episode 16 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. Woo! I'm your host, Andrew. I'm Eli. And we have with us today... Hi, I'm Camilo Gomez. Don't be shy. Yeah, we've got we've got an awesome guest with us today. So, listeners, this is a uh, continuation of our mini-series on Mount Elbrus, the highest mountain in Europe. Get off of us, Mount Bloch in France. You're not the highest in Europe. Elbrus <laughs> is the highest in Europe. Uh, so, Milo, Gotta be welcome. careful saying stuff like that. You do. With our French listeners, they will rise up in arms. We, we already clarified, according to FIFA laws and regulations, that uh, Elbrus is in, in Europe and therefore the highest. Decided. Therefore, the highest. Um, we'll, we'll deal with the backlash as it comes. Uh, <laughs> it could be oh, mighty. A strange ticking package. Oh, my. Now I'm a little worried. Uh, hey, so Milo, welcome to our show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Big right. fan. Yeah, love Ooh, it. Big Lo- fan. It's great to have big fans on our show. Um, so Milo, uh, well, listeners, let me say, you know, Eli and I talked already a little bit about what we know about, about Mount Bruce. We are not experts. We've both been there, kind of as tourists. Um, now I've never been to Elbrus. I think I've been to Elbrus six or seven times. So, Woo! listeners. At least one of us knows a little bit about the topic we're talking about. Ouch. Uh, But uh, Milo, so we're like, we're outsiders. We're foreigners who live here in the Caucasus talking about Elbrus from a tourist perspective. Uh, Milo is much higher up on the expert scale when talking about a mountain like Elbrus. Um, He is humble and probably uh, would not identify like that, but he is. So, He's up there. Yeah. yeah. Mi- Milo. That's, that's um, high praise. <laughs> but I appreciate it. No pun intended. So <laughs> will you, um, Milo, can you give us just a little background about yourself and like why, why are we having you here on the show today talking about Mount Elbrus? I don't know. Why are you having me here? We're <laughs> <laughs> um, tired no, of our own voices. I suppose it's because I've climbed a few mountains, though I would not say many. Um, in university, I was pretty into rock climbing and what Russians would call alpinism, though I'd, I wouldn't consider myself an alpinist. Um, but I did a, a bit of guiding, uh, worked a little bit in Alaska and in Colorado. Um, so that's the key word worked equals professional equals yes. world expert. More than us. Compared to me at the jumps. bottom of the food chain. Some big jumps. That's exponential right we, there. Gazing make, at Elbrus as a We make big jumps on this podcast. My, my disclaimer was I was a rock climbing guide, which is, is down on the you know, little cliffs, setting up climbs for people mainly, but, occasionally no, I'm, taking- I'm curious about this. You said that you wouldn't consider yourself an alpinist. Yeah. What gives? I mean, if you go into big mountains and can do that, uh, volume, volume. I, I wouldn't like have, the amount of mount that you've climbed. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. I like have a lot of the skills, or at least the know-how on so, some things. But but you are a certified rock climbing guide. Yeah, through the AMGA, the American Mountain Guide Association. That's correct. But well, a certified rock guide means uh, somebody of a bit higher training than me. I have what's called a single pitch instructor certification, 
uh, which means I am certified to guide top roping. Um, and that, for people who don't know, means where the rope is always fixed above you um, and you can never really fall, uh, as opposed to a rock guide is... Uh, what that means in the professional world, you are guiding more on the multi-pitch environment, which uh-huh. is climbing bigger things where you have to um, use one rope uh, multiple times, like on multiple pitches uh, to ascend much higher off the ground. And uh, there's a lot more danger involved and potential to fall and stuff. Equals fun. Equals so fun. an SPI, you, you're certified to guide or to lead people on trad leads. Correct, correct. It doesn't have to be top rope. I guess eventually you top rope it. Right. That's the that's the idea. And I have done some of the training for the Rock Guide course, but Rock Guide's up the food chain. But yeah, it is. We're we're just trying to so we're getting the feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So listeners, in case you couldn't tell already, one of the three of us here does not belong and it's me. Uh <laughs> Eli and Milo have uh a lot of experience doing rock climbing, different things in the mountain uh, mountains. Uh, Milo, what uh, what are some of the kind of like mountain activities that you have experience doing personally or doing some professional guiding in? Sure. Um, my primary is absolutely rock climbing. Um, anything from what we call single pitch to multi pitch. So multi pitch is like what gets you up. Rock faces like El Capitan. Most okay. of our listeners will be uh, familiar with that. Yosemite. In Yosemite. Um, <laughs> Yosemite. <laughs> and that is where you are spending uh, a few hours to days on the wall. Wow. Um, and have you spent I've, days on a wall? Have I? No. Okay. I've a- spent more than... I've wanted to on a <laughs> wall, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> but I I probably maximum like... 12, 16 hours, something like that. Wow. Um, so done quite a bit of rock climbing. Uh, have ice climbed. I have guided both rock climbing and ice, and ice climbing. Um, I have ski patrolled. So Sweet. one of those guys in the funny red jackets up the ski hill who comes and picks you up if you're broken. Did that <laughs> for a season. And then have also guided a lot of backpacking and trekking um, type okay. things. That's what I was doing in Alaska, rock guiding and guiding uh, two-week backpacking trips. Um, and actually, I was in Canada when I would do the backpacking trips around the Yukon Territory. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, for there. Nice. Mm-hmm. So you, um, yeah, you have pretty good international experience as far as Colorado, Alaska, Canada, and even now here in the Caucasus. Yeah, I climbed in Mexico too, climbed Ecuador, Zaba. Cool. Um, and yeah, I think that would we'll be all nod my, as far as climbing that. goes. Yeah, yeah that's climb. awesome. And uh, I want to vouch for uh, Milo. He took me and some other guys to do some rock climbing, basic rock climbing this summer. First time I ever did that, had a blast. Wasn't very good, but I really enjoyed getting, to, getting to learn from Milo and watch uh, him do something he's really good at. Is um, that a, on Mashuk, Andrew? M- no, this was in. This was close to Elbrus. It was kind of on the nice. way to Elbrus. Those yeah. huge rock faces. You're kind of driving. Oh. Along. So, so you could drop like I climb near Elbrus. right past Turnhouse. Yeah, uh, cool. Um, so Milo, this summer, uh, you climbed to the summit of Mount Elbrus. Yeah, we did. 
I did. Congratulations. Other people. <laughs> he is plural. No, you had a team, you had a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's thank you, know, you. Thank you. It's it's a big deal, listeners. I don't I it didn't sound that epic when I said it, but that is a really big deal. He Milo has summited one of the seven summits of the world. It's really awesome. That deserves theme music if we had it. Yeah, let, we need something there. Um some you should insert the Lord of the Rings. Ooh, right see? Now you're getting my <laughs> That's what I always hum to myself when I'm in places like that. <laughs> That's awesome. There are some great videos that we're going to link to the, on the show notes to this episode of people climbing El Bruce with like a soundtrack playing. Oh, and yeah. you know that music was not playing when they were climbing, but it makes it sound and look so epic in the video. I don't video. know. People, people play music. I walked past a guy and there was music. It was like walking past like a car driving past blasting music, mm-hmm. but it was just a guy. Oh, and yeah. I was like, wait, oh, where's yeah. that coming from? I had from? my headphones in for some of it. He oh, had wow. like a for fanny sure. though with speakers. Yeah. I mean, like a fanny pack. I yeah. mean, he was... A jammy pack. <laughs> jammy pack. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about this climb. Yeah. Okay. So, Milo, why don't you just... I don't know how many of our listeners, I would assume the minority of them have actually done some serious mountain climbing. Uh, can you just kind of from start to finish describe what it was like for you and your team to climb Mount Elbrus? Sure, for sure. Um, cool. Well, it started with, actually started two and a half years ago when I came to Russia for a short trip and uh-huh. tried to climb Mount Elbrus, um, and that trip was kind of, I didn't come to climb Mount Elbrus, but I knew I was in the area, and so I tacked it on to the end of another trip and tried to do it really fast, just in three days with a few people. Okay. Does that include acclimatization? Including acclimatization, acclimatization. We'll, we'll talk about, um, and it didn't work at all, so we didn't make it very high at oh, all. Oh, okay. Um, but it wet my whistle, and I knew it was here, and I knew I could do it because I saw the mountain, and the only problem last time was uh, was that acclimatization and not doing it properly. Okay. And so, um, but it started off this summer with research and planning, and uh-huh. uh, we are fortunate enough here to um, know a few guides on the mountain and people who are from the area. So you weren't yourself guiding? I would not have said I was guiding that I was kind of functioning in a somewhere in between role. Okay. Um, there's a lot of details I was managing for sure. Um, and it started with talking with those guys, um, and just finding out what the best time to climb was the best method. So I was like, okay, a few years ago I tried to blitz this thing and it didn't work at all. Mm -hmm. And see, I thought it might work because when we climbed Orizaba in Mexico uh, some years ago, we did a much shorter schedule. And how oh. high is that? It's the same height, actually. It's 18.4. I don't remember. That oh, wow. Okay. But they have more frijoles there, which uh-huh. helps you with around. Well, no, yeah. the difference, what I think it was, was it's I live in Colo- lived in Colorado at the time. Uh-huh. was living in Estes Park, which is about 8,000 feet. Jeez. And that was, you know, I was living there, running, playing. Um, and already somewhat pre-acclimatized. So we flew into Mexico, spent maybe two days at sea level, and we're back up to higher elevations. So we had a little bit more going for us. Whereas when I tried to climb Elbrus a few years ago, we spent two and a half weeks at sea level, and and that was sufficient to just take away all of our Colorado 
uh, advantage. Advantage. Yeah. And so we had to start from square one, but we didn't. So okay. So Not planning, successful. research. Mm-hmm. That was your first stage. And collect and gathering a team. So there's lots of people who. Um, when they hear the idea of let's climb this mountain are like, yeah, that sounds great. And then you start to put the team together and start to send them information on how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost. And they begin to realize it's quite a big commitment. Dropping like flies. Um, So for example, it is recommended you take at least seven to eight days to climb the mountain. Um, That's a, that's a long time for, for people to be away from families. Um, and I did not bring numbers with me, so I can't tell you exactly it's how much fine. it cost off the top People can of my look head. stuff up, but don't matter. But um, So when you say climb the mountain, what do you mean it takes? Are you actually climbing the mountain seven to eight days? This is, no, yeah. no. No, of actual climbing on the mountain, it really is only one day. Okay. Um, partly because of man's wonderful mechanical achievements. <laughs> and, uh, Known as levers yep and uh <laughs> just kidding also because of it's just actually not that big of a mountain i mean it is really big but as mountains go it's it's not the biggest by any means um okay you hear that elbrus <laughs> <laughs> so when you say man's mechanical achievements are you referring to the cable cars that take you up to twelve thousand feet and the then, cable cars and then the huts and then that you sleep in there the huts that you sleep in and then the snow cats that you take further. Are those okay. the barrel huts? They're big cylindrical. The, the barrel huts, yes. Because they look like barrels? Is that what they call that? Yeah, well, the first ones that were built there, the oldest ones, are actually barrels. They're um, actually left But over. then there's a lot of other quote-unquote barrel huts that uh-huh. are really just, they're more like uh, uh, trailer homes. That's nice. kind of what they feel like. Cool. All right. So. so how high up do you get using man's mechanical advantage? 14,000 feet, about. It's pretty so high. 14, maybe a little higher, 14 and a bit. Okay. Mm. So you, you get a, a pretty significant um, jump. jump from your uh, using cable cars and, and vehicles. If you want to, you don't have to use those. You can, of course, do the whole thing on foot. And I think someday I would like to do that. But for this trip, being our first trip... Um, we we decided not to. And part of that was that much of the team I built really had no experience with this kind of thing. Huh. So we just elected for the most uh, manageable plan of climbing the mountain possible. Um, and so we began our journey by traveling from Pitagorsk, where I live, up to the base of the mountain, mm-hmm. um, to my friend's hostel. Uh, it, right outside of a city called Turnaus, uh in the Baksan River Valley. Mm-hmm. And we spent two nights there. Um, was that were, just visiting or was that for altitude? That was for altitude. That's to begin our um, acclimatization. How high is t- Turnaus? That is a good question. Yeah. That, I would yeah. guess no if, if Tirskol right at the base is around 8,000 feet. I can look it up on my phone. I bet Turnaus is around 5,000 feet or something. That would be my guess. Something like that. That sounds about right. I, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Well. I want you to go ahead and finish. Just give us the the skeleton of of the the climb. Sweet. I have a question. Okay. So then two days there uh, in Turnaus, then we went up to, did two acclimatization hikes. Then we went to Azau, which is the true kind of what you'd think of base of the mountain. That's where the cable car or um, chairlift leaves from. Um, that's where you can rent gear if you need it. There's uh, a ton of infrastructure. There's skiing there and things like that. 
Is it? It's resorty, resort-ish. By Russian standards, it's resorty. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And that's probably about eight thousand feet from there. We took the cable car up to the aforementioned barrel huts, well, um, which use. are uh, at about twelve thousand feet. Yeah. And there's actually a, stif- a couple different sets of them at various elevations. So Do there's you- some at twelve thousand. There's some at like thirteen. There's some at Almost all the way up to fourteen thousand. Wow. And do you reserve them? Um, you do. Yeah, we through my um, guide contact, um, I reserved all of this stuff in advance. Okay. Um, and so we got there. We met Tahir, my my friend and guide. I don't. Know, and what? is it like a another little village up there, or is it just huts? And you bring all your own stuff, and you take sh- snow showers, or I mean. Um, there's not showers, but there, there is a cafe up there, um, that services people and they can bring, you can buy stuff at that. Otherwise it is. But there's electricity. There's electricity. Yeah. Yeah. There's electricity outhouses. So there's no plumbing. We've heard about those. Um, but there's gas. Um, so for example, where we were staying in the little company that owned our huts, um, there was a bunch, there's like four sleeping huts and then one communal uh, kitchen hut and in that kitchen hut there was gas stoves and then running water but not through plumbing basically you just had a um large <laughs> container and uh above a sink and you had grav- gravity fed running water you just shovel that, snow into the container yeah we would go sh- we would go collect snow from a nearby um frozen lake and uh well water actually cuz melting snow takes a lot of energy um and we would just refill the the large. See, that's how jug. you know he's really a mountaineer because people don't normally talk about things taking energy. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> mean like physical strength. He means like jewels. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> well, energy just like in, gas in you know, the you, universe. You'd be using a lot of gas to to uh, melt that snow if you can already get it. Laws in water of thermodynamics. Form. So, Milo, what I'm hearing is, uh, if you want to climb a mountain like El Bruce. Actually, a huge percentage and chunk of the work is the preparation. Sure. Kind of getting your body acclimatized and all the work you put into preparing for the actual day of the climb. Is that right? Definitely. Yeah. All right. What can you tell me what biologically, physiologically happens in acclimatization? Sure. Um, You literally, you're like, your blood changes. I don't know if it's your hemoglobin or something else, but hemoglobin uh, carries oxygen. Yeah, so it is. It's your hemoglobin. Usually, um, one little hemoglobe, <laughs> one little <laughs> one little, little, little particle of hemoglobin carries one molecule of ox- oxygen. Um, during acclimatization, your blood actually adapts to be able to carry two. Wow, part, really? like molecules of oxygen. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, wow. Along with that, there's other physiological adaptions that do take place. Um, things which is how your body processes um, food and energy and where it allocates resources all starts to kind of – it does a lot of different shifts. There's a lot of really interesting science on it. And wow. uh, probably two years ago when I was fresh out of my EMT class and uh, mountaineering a lot more, I could have – Giving you a lot more fun facts oh, than I can now, but <laughs> but I just you know it's interesting to me that you guys tried to blitz it. You took three days, and you were young twenties. 
yeah, you know, healthy Coloradan mountaineer types, mm-hmm. and you didn't quite have the respect that for acclimatization you needed. Sure, sure. That was the first time I had really needed to acclimatize. Wow. And didn't do it. And-, and you think in two weeks down at sea level that was enough for your hemoglobes, hemoglobes to be like, dude, I no, don't so, need this yeah. extra O2. If I remember correctly, they tell you it takes Uh-oh. about two weeks to get to what they say is 80% of acclimatization to whatever elevation you're at. And remember, people live year-round at, or almost year-round at Everest Base Camp, which is at about 18,000 feet, if wow. I remember correctly. Sure. So the, the the summit of the mountain I just, we climbed this summer, people live at huh. almost year-round. Um, and so your body can adapt up to quite a high elevation. Um, wow. But they say it takes about two and a half or two weeks to get to 80%. And then the last 20% takes much, much longer to get to. Okay. But then they say you can lose it in just about three days. Okay. Dang. So So it's your body is basically just very oxygen greedy. And when it knows there's plenty, plenty, it just, it's lazy too. Yeah. Yeah, We're all lazy slobs. So you acclimatized, you spend multiple days on the mountain doing some hikes, getting your your body prepared. Tell us about the actual climb day. What is that like? How does it feel doing it as a Mm -hmm. team? Yeah. Um, It's really fun. Uh, So Mm -hmm. you get up at, uh, depends on your team. You know, you, you kind of, uh, gauge how you guys are doing if you are slow you get up earlier if you know you're fast (laughs) and all can hang you can get up later but uh your average team and we were around average um probably gets up at one or two in the morning uh Mm -hmm. and you catch a snow cat from the barrel huts up to about 14 a little past 14 15 it's like sticking your thumb out you know on the snow cat road right right so they're all just going by you just like throw your bag on and you hop no you you reserve them yeah. in advance. Um, it's listeners. That's a snowcat is basically like a huge uh, mountain <laughs> SUV or tractor that hauls people up the mountain to a farther, yeah. farther spot. Mm-hmm. Right with the with the tread on the bottom. What's it yeah. called? It's like yeah, a tank, old, like a tank kind of like snow, snow tank. Yeah, but people. they break way easier. I used to drive one for <laughs> ski patrol, and they're they're kind of obnoxious Touchy. to work with, huh. but they're really cool. Okay. We took the snowcat up to Putzdehove Rocks, which is like around fifteen thousand feet. Um, man, I'm I'm a little nervous because I didn't bring facts with me, so That's I'm okay. like hoping I'm spitting out the right Crash numbers yourself. here. It's enough. Um, so, and that takes about forty five minutes, and is really cold because you're not moving, right? And you're all bundled up. You're wearing, you know, two down jackets and these massive mittens that like look like you don't have hands anymore. Um, it's awesome. Do the snowcat drivers provide those or do you rent them? Or? No, this is just your own gear. Cause it just gets colder from, from there uh-huh. until the sun comes up. Uh-huh. Um, so you for about 45 minutes up and then you jump out and you keep walking up and Elbrus is pretty simple. The route is not complicated. There's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of hazard on it at all. Um, you, you basically hike up, turn left. <laughs> Keep hiking, turn left again, go up another hill, and then you're at the summit. But, you know, that takes a long time to like do. Like how long? Uh, like eight hours. So, wow. Mm-hmm. 
Is uh-huh. it a pretty steady? It looks like a pretty steady pitch. From, it does. It looks very steady. It looks close even. You've got these two summits and you're yeah. like, that doesn't look that far oh, away. Man. But then you just keep walking What's the, and walking what's like, and walking. I mean, not as the crow flies, but as the person walks. Do you know what the, the distance the is? The distance, yeah. Like overland. I don't. On that slope. My guess would be no more than three miles. Cause, but it's you're going up almost a mile. Not nah, you're going up. Yeah, probably two thirds of a mile yeah. out to three thousand yeah. feet elevation. Think about so. Think about that, listeners. If you know, if you just walked a mile, you know, here at sea level, it would probably take you fifteen to twenty minutes. If you ran a mile, I mean, most people, it could be anywhere between seven to twelve minutes running a mile. Uh and then, but it took you guys eight hours to cover that distance. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I mean, we we're had not some people moving really slow. Yeah. 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 That, but that, would so, you say that's probably pretty average in eight hour yeah, climb? Yeah. I mean, I've read that that's, you, you leave eight hours for that, for the, um, I would say our overall time, uh, slower went into the slower end of things. Okay. I'd, I'd say after it was all said and done, our team was a bit slow. Okay. Hmm. So what makes for, for the mountaineer, what makes a mountain riveting? I mean, can you give specifics um, for people who are just like, I don't really know what mountain, I know people go up and come down, but like, what do you do that makes it more riveting? More technical um, activity. So what that means is on Elbrus, you pretty much just walk. Uh-huh. There's one section that's probably... Oh, three or 400 feet long where the snow slope you're walking up is very steep. Um, and there are what we call fixed ropes, which are long ropes going along the ground, running along the ground that are anchored in the snow. And you can clip it into if you want with a carabiner that's connected to your harness, mm-hmm. which is like a belt type yeah. thing you're wearing around right. your waist. I'm sure. Everyone Did you guys clip into those? Yeah, you just clip clip right in. Uh-huh. They're, they're attached using these big metal snow stakes or um, ice screws. Uh-huh. Um, so would you say, like, is it painful for your body? How does your body feel? Like, is oh, it sure hard it to just kind of move up, up a mountain at, at that elevation? Yeah. Um, well, it all depends on like what you're acclimatized to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, so uh, for example, talk here, our guide was just running all over the place and wow. he goes up and down it every day. And like when I was guiding all the time in, Colorado, uh, the mountain I guided on a lot was called Long's Peak, and it's only fourteen thousand feet. But the people I would be gliding would be su- guiding would be suffering. But because I was up there all the time, huh. it felt really normal to me, and I could just run around all over the place and and wasn't particularly taxing. And you could see that in the different people on Elbrus. There was the guides who were up there every day, every yeah. other day, climbing it multiple times a season, um, and they were literally running where I had to take two steps and then take three breaths. Wow. Um, and that's just the physiological difference of, right. of, of what your body's accustomed to. Um, so for me, yeah, it was there was a bit of oh, what I call getting in the pain cave. You just like kind of like, yep, this is how this feels, but yeah. the I can do it. Cave. It's worth it. And you just keep walking. That's a great expression. I'm going to use um, it with children. Get in the pain cave. Yeah, get in the pain cave. <laughs> so you're but saying it, like – Man, like literally that's about all your body can handle physically is you take a couple steps and then you just have to stop, rest, and then take a couple more steps. Is it kind of like that going a lot of the way Sure. Up? I mean, there's more like, it's not like 
you know, you're about to keel over. Right. Um, but, and you get into a rhythm. Um, so it's like, you know, step, breath, step, breath, okay. or, or, you know, you can choose how you want to do it. I mean, don't people talk about alpine pace? Or yeah, exactly. Like pace. rest stepping, like that's a term. Like, yeah, you take you. a step and like micro rest and kind mm-hmm. of very exactly. different from so how that, you normally walk. There's techniques to approach it. Um, Sounds fun. But yeah, like I definitely couldn't run for more than like five or six steps and then I would definitely have to have stopped. Right. And it, just because like you're, you're sucking air, it's just like, <gasps> wow. And I was fortunate. I, uh, I didn't, I don't remember feeling sick until really at all on the climb. I was maybe on the, on the way down after we'd been out, like just kind of exhaustion and like overall fatigue caught up with me. But as far as I don't, Remember feeling ever altitude sick uh-huh. this time But around. did some on your team? Uh, yeah, some guys got real sick. Did they throw up? I don't remember if anyone threw up. If they did, it wasn't. Oh yeah, people threw up. I remember. <laughs> um, is that is that a, a symptom of altitude sickness? Yeah, yeah, okay. that's pretty normal. Stomach having like stomach issues, um, and also um, headache. Those are the kind of, like the right. big ones. What do you do for that? Uh, go down. <laughs> or acclimatize better or just deal with it or deal with it yeah but it's not yeah. like you pop an advil and you feel you right know, yeah away. it's there's not much you can do in the moment to continue and relieve symptoms at the same time that's where you take the ziploc that you filled up before you left full of lower air that's right <laughs> yeah. that's right just <laughs> ah, i forgot my ziploc <laughs> here's my breath wait it's empty ah. so Sorry. milo that's i've right. heard this uh, speak to this is it actually pretty common for people climbing El Bruce that a good number of them actually don't make it to the top? I don't know what the percentage is, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's it's very common for people not to make the summit. Well, I mean, out of our team, of everyone who set foot on the mountain, let's see, we had nine people uh-huh. and um, uh, only six made the summit. Okay. Really? So. Yeah, that's 33 What does the guy do in that situation? Do you just send those people down and say, like, look for the village? And Yeah, so um, it depends. Two of our guys never left – or one – sorry, one of our guys never ever left the huts. He was feeling bad on acclimatization hikes. Um, mm. And uh, I'm sorry, I told you incorrectly. We had eight people and only – Six made it to the summit. Okay. Yeah. So one of the guys who didn't make it um, never left the huts. He was feeling bad beforehand, and and we kind of just worked to the decision together that, like, it wasn't wise for him to climb. Um, And then the second guy was doing good, um, and he rode up to um, Pustahov Rocks with us. Mm Uh, got off the snowcat, and we had made it maybe two or three hundred feet hiking up. Um, and he started to move really slowly. Maybe made it another hundred feet. Um, and he was really deteriorating. Hmm. Um, he was starting to be sort of dizzy, lose his balance, and also was obviously not thinking clearly. Ooh, getting loopy. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so altitude sickness and uh, really started to quickly um, set in with him. Um, and that was pretty recognizable. So it, 
he was really it's funny group dynamics is a huge mm-hmm. thing in in these because you have all these different experience levels and people wanting to encourage each other so i i figured out pretty quickly that he needed to go down um and at first was just trying to coax him into making that decision for uh-huh. himself and it was just kind of talking through it with him but then huh. two of our other guys were like no nah, man you can oh, do it yeah. Keep going. and finally i was like okay no you're just going down like i'm making this decision wow. for you because you don't you you can't stand up straight right. without kind of like wobbling around wow um so i kind of volunteered uh to take the you don't send someone like that down by themselves obviously you're like okay good, good luck you know <laughs> see you at dinner go. we're gonna keep climbing <laughs> right. i mean groups do do that and that's where you hear horror stories of people like falling into crevasses wow. and yeah. dying and things like that um and things can still go wrong even if you do everything right but sure. obviously we sure. we take care of each other up there so um i was kind of i volunteered to take that position um to to go down with anyone who got sick so i um Started walking him back down, uh, was like keeping a hand on him, came pretty close to putting him on belay, which is where I would have basically roped him to myself because he was having trouble like taking steady steps down. He kept like stumbling over himself. Wow. Um, and got him back down to where the snow cats were. Um, and usually you have to pay if you want to have someone take you down. But I just walked up to one of the snow crabbers. I was like, hey, this guy's sick. Can, uh, can you take him down? <laughs> um, and I, maybe it was just because of my really poor Russian. Uh, <laughs> poor soul. Tell as an American. And, uh, or your breathtaking good looks. Or that too. You know, <laughs> Through his charming personality. I'm sure I was. Actually, I had a nosebleed at them for some reason my nose like for half of the climb my nose was bleeding wow. it was ridiculous and he didn't even know it, it i did know it but it was it. like because it was so cold it was like kind of like icicle trip dripping out and so it was wow like, i bet i looked super gnarly I'm like can this dude get on the snowcat with you like we've been trying to like, find you guys for a week just terrible russian and the guy's like yeah yeah I left arm. <laughs> so i get him on the snowcat and i'm like well i'm only i'm only an hour and a half behind those other guys i'm gonna Hoof it. Not, I'm not going to give this thing. I'm feeling great. So so you went up by yourself back and caught so, up. So, yeah, I've got him on the snowcat. The, the route is really simple uh-huh. at this point. And so I Did you have a headlamp? Up the hill or did you go by the light of the stars? Put my, I put my tunes in, got my like inspirational beats on. And That's where the Lego lost. Boom. Thing came. That's did, awesome. Were you, and you have a headlamp is, on? Huh? Do you have a headlamp on? At the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still dark. It's, still it's crazy all that's happening at night. I, it's really interesting hearing the dynamic of – Milo, who's a really experienced guide and climber, and for you, it wasn't that difficult in the big picture things, combined with another person who probably I would fall in this other person's camp who <laughs> literally could barely stand up and had to be almost dragged down the mountain because he was loopy. Like, it's amazing kind of the extent mm-hmm. of the experience based right. on what a person's body can handle, you know? So mm-hmm. when they say average, you know, roughly 10 people die a year on Elbrus, mm-hmm. what, what do you, I, maybe you may not know, but what do you attribute that to? I mean, you, like you said, it's not mostly technical. Maybe there are, are technical routes that people, uh, uh, there is on the other side, right? Uh, yeah, there is on the other side. It's probably not technical. Most of the, there's, usually in those statistics, ex, unless we're talking about like Everest or K2 or something where the entire thing is just this technical Right. Like push. Um, on a mountain like Everest, that's probably mostly like 
Is that do you know if that's actually climbers who die or just deaths on Elbrus? Climbers. Good question. Climbers. climbers. I've read that. Stat. Most likely, my guess would be first heart conditions. Mm, like people uh, come with their own. Yeah, people coming because it's a it's a very popularly guided mountain. Uh, it's probably. From my understanding, well, Kilimanjaro might be the easiest, but one of the easier yes. of the seven summits. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, it's very accessible. So you'll have people with like questionable um, medical histories come right, right. And, wow. and you could have somebody doing a heart attack. Second would probably be weather and, and losing your way on the mountain. So the route is really simple. If you stay on the route, it is completely without danger. You don't even rope up. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on more technical mountains, you move with what's called a rope team where you're all roped together because oh. you have crevasses, which are big crevices and glaciers. <laughs> They're just, just crevices said in a funny way. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, and, you, and so you're doing all this other stuff um, as well. But the thing is on Elbrus is the route's very simple, but like all mountains, the weather can change very quickly and it can go from beautiful – uh, sunny skies to snowstorm, lightning storm, yada, 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 um, quickly. Earlier in the summer, there was an uh, American guy actually from Colorado as well. He's a, a policeman from Littleton, I think, uh, got lost on the mountain wow. um, and uh, is presumably dead up there. They searched for him for a few months, oh, but man. he was climbing it solo. Um, which some people might find foolish, but if you're into solo climbing, it, it's really not a dangerous objective. But, um, you know, he uh, the weather changed. That's exactly what happened. The weather changed on him. Wow. He probably got lost trying to find his way down and wandered off onto a different part of the mountain and either died of exposure, just getting really cold, and, and then eventually falling asleep and getting buried in the snow or falling into a crevasse. And, still probably dying of exposure so wow man that's really yeah. sad so it's possible it's it's real you know and that's climbing with others is, and that's part of the guide's role too is to know what weather right is coming what it looks like up there when weather is coming correct kind of have a have a sense of that yeah. hmm. so yeah. let's fast forward uh uh what's it like on the top when you get there um cold <laughs> and windy wow and awesome uh so it's kind of funny because Mountains love to do this. They love to like trick you about what the top of the mountain is. And so with Elbrus, you are going up your mat last major steep pitch of the mountain and you see this lovely little cone off to your upper left and you're like, that's got to be the summit. That's like, we've been going for so long. That must be the summit. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, but it's like, then the, the route's not leading like directly to it. And you're like, why are we not going in that direction? And then you come up and you, and you come up onto this large plateau at the summit, and it's about three football fields long, probably. And then at the other end, you see this other slightly higher little cone, and it's at the far end of the of the big football field plateau. And you're like, ah, that's the summit because you can see everyone standing on it and people going. Up there. <laughs> and from where you're at, it doesn't even look higher. But once you get there, you realize it is the true summit. And you walk up to it, you you do this long, wonderful walk with people congratulating you, like, you're almost there, and then uh, you get up to the real summit, and it's very cool. Our day was, um, it was clear above us, but then the horizon was fairly obscured by all these clouds, which was really beautiful, but we couldn't necessarily see all of the Caucasus range or very far away from the mountain. Um. 
and yes, and you start to feel like you have been feeling the altitude, but you really start to feel it as you just hang out up there. You're like, uh-huh. oh, yeah, I shouldn't. This is not where I'm meant to be living at this point <laughs> in my life. I probably, I probably have maybe half an hour, an hour up here, and then I need wow. to, I need to be heading down. Mm-hmm. Um, very cold. Like you take your gloves off to take photos and stuff, and you can have them out for a few seconds before you're like, my okay, goodness, putting those gloves back on. So wow, yeah, mm-hmm. wow, that's so cool. Well, I'm sure lots have congratulated you, but congratulations, you did it. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. That was fun. Yeah, man. I hope I hope listeners like that it definitely for me helps me understand like this is no small feat. It's hard and it requires preparation and work. And even with that, you're not guaranteed to make it. You know, it for sure. In in movies or videos, it can look like this glorious, epic thing, which it is, but that may not feel like that right. when you're step step breathing, step step breathing. We call it type three fun. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> no, what is that? <laughs> the, type, the types of fun. So, your type one fun is like fun right now. <laughs> like, type one fun is, well, for me, like skiing, you know, like this is fun right now, but it could be for people like playing soccer or playing cards with their friends, but like, there's no, there's not a lot of suffering involved. Yeah, it's just like, is fun in the moment. It's just, it's just straight up good old. Good fun. Like doing caucus stuff. Uh-huh. Like like right now. <laughs> Type two fun is more like the fun that's fun the next day. But while you're doing it, it's like this actually isn't that much fun. So like maybe like running a marathon or uh-huh. or something like that. A little bit more like there's gonna be a moment where you're like, actually this kind of sucks. In and of itself. <laughs> Why did I like I my body hurts? Um yes. I'm, you know, hungry, tired, thirsty. It's when you might say, Are we having fun yet? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But pretty quickly you recover. You're like the next day you're like, actually that was pretty fun. I'm ready to go do that again. Yeah. Type three is the type of fun it takes maybe a few weeks to a few months <laughs> to recover from like wow. birth. Like birth, apparently. I don't really remember that. But, um, we'll just leave that leave that comment to stand, in stand by itself. It is type three fun. But yeah, alpinism and, and mountain climbing often falls into that category. See, where, but then I feel like you you have defied wow. and transcended the word fun. I mean, it is fun, but it's so much more, right? You yeah, know, it is fun in it in and of itself is kind of middling and, and trite and 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 not so. Uh, uh, it doesn't have such gravitas as something like <laughs> mountain climbing, and yeah, then, you know. Yeah. But it is. I mean, it is fun. But it's like more like a better word is glorious. You know, glorious might might be correct. That's awesome. I mean, That's you, then you start getting at like the whole heart of why people do these things to begin. Just the sense of like, why are we doing this? And it's in and of itself, it it is worthwhile to be engaged in something hard and glorious. Man, that's far better than I could have ever said. That. Type three fun. I'm gonna. I don't know how many things in my life I've done that I could consider type three fun. I'm gonna have to reflect on that. I'm more of a type it's, type one fun kind of guy. Yeah, you're I mean, great at type one it's fun. It's a Andrew. certain you're, person you're the who boss. gravitates gravitates toward that. There's been more than once where you know you can't feel your face. There was one time in Colorado as I was climbing, and my eyelids were literally getting shut, free, frozen shut. 
Like, that's very type three. It's wow. like having your eyelids frozen f- shut is never fun in the moment. I'll tell you what. I keep talking about this walk to school, but I think this week my son would consider <laughs> that type three fun. Because he's like, I think I need one of those I need one of those masks that just shows your eyes and mouth. You need a balclava? This is a 10-minute walk. He's like, yeah, I need one of those. <laughs> Man. But I'm in the right place to get one. It's pretty cold here. It's they, they've got chilly. The, it's not nippy. wet cold here in yeah, Russia. Yeah, it is. Colorado, we have nice dry cold. No, not here. So, Milo, we could, there's a lot of stuff we can keep talking about. Thank you for coming on our show. I want to, we always end with this one question to our guests. And so our final question to you is, if there's one thing you could tell the world about the North Caucasus, and even specifically about Elbrus or climbing Elbrus, what would it be? Because we're, we're broadcasting all over the world here in the English language. What, what was that one thing you would tell the world? Um, I mean, what stood out far and beyond above everything else was, and I, sad I didn't highlight this more, was the help and advice and everything our local guide Tahir did. That guy is amazing. Um, Beyond just like uh, hooking us up as friends in many ways, um, he guided us for free, for example. He he would not let me pay him at all, like refused. Um, But he just took such good care of us, went far and beyond what anybody in the professional guiding world would ever be expected to do. Wow. Um, And then beyond that, just uh, his his help and his care for others on the mountain too. Um, As we were coming off the mountain, actually a lightning storm did kind of – catch us and we were pretty close back to the huts but there was a lot of people who needed help making it through the final last couple hundred <laughs> lightning uh, storm descent <laughs> yeah wow. and he and yeah. along with the other um uh balkar people who were working mm-hmm. up on the mountain were like staging these heroic um snowmobile rescues wow of all these like stranded not put stranded that, but put tired climbers away. um <laughs> And so that was amazing to watch. So I would just say um, the people who live around the mountain are are just incredible. Um, awesome. I've been really blessed to get to know them really well. Wow. Uh, I mean, Andrew, doesn't that just fall in line with pretty much everything that we have tried to highlight yeah. about North Caucasus I culture? Mean, that's so that's so cool that you can, it's on the mountain too. Yeah, you know, I would it's assume in that world. probably most people come to climb El Bruce. It's probably they're on a personal mission, like they want to accomplish something. And so they've yeah. got in their minds this goal, physical goal they want to achieve. But then, yeah. like you said, what probably surprises people the most is the hospitality and generosity and just the great Definitely. local people that make that possible, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. That was by far wow. That's the best. awesome. At every level of the trip, he was not the only person to host us and to take really good care of us. Um, and everyone we came in contact to was just incredible. Yeah, that's really awesome. Wow. Well, Milo, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. A guys. final question: Have you heard of or have been to the world's worst outhouse, which is purported to be on Mount Elbrus? You know, I heard that that's there too. I've been to some gnarly outhouses, <laughs> Elbrus. Uh huh. I don't know if you were at- if I would count which I don't know which one was the worst. I I don't think I found it. Okay, because they were they were usable. Uh huh. They were usable. All right. Well, we won't go into all that again. We're gonna get up there to to check that out ourselves. Andrew, we're gonna find Personal it. We can do an, an outhouse episode. 
So uh, I'll come back for that one. Nilo, thanks for uh, name dropping Takir. Uh, Takir is a friend of mine as well, and we're we're hoping to interview him on this podcast to get a local person's perspective as somebody who grew up there and has climbed the mountain a lot as well. Um, mm-hmm. So we are not we are not in any way endorsing uh, Takir giving you free trips up El Bruce. Uh, Sorry, but, uh, yeah, that that's a good picture though into what a what a friend will do for a friend here in the Caucasus, though. That's yeah, right. Um, that's true. So, man, again, Milo, thank you. And uh, we'll, have, we'll have some, uh, uh, anything we reference here today, we'll have maybe some things linked in the show notes. Um, got to find a link for Type 3 Fun. That's got, there's got to be a blog <laughs> oh, there's be out there. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus Mountains of Russia. And we will see you when you get here. <laughs>